This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, NVIDIA joins us to talk AI, machine learning, and whether it's all just one big fad. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio with me today. I have a couple of guests to talk about AI. Uh, one of those guests is actually from NVIDIA. As far as your last name goes, is it Pekaday? It's Pikaday. Pikaday, ah. And it, yeah, it never gets pronounced the way it is. So no, that, no, I, that makes, no, Pikaday sounds right because of P-A-I, Pi. And actually, I, I got the last part. <laughs> I got the last part right. Kaday. Yeah, so. it's funny. It's the one place in the world where people pronounce it consistently correct all the time for some reason is Spain. Huh. And that's because phonetically AI is a long I sound for them or something. I don't know. I can't figure it out. Is that why you got an AI? Because your name? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Mind blown. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I, that's that's totally new. I never. Uh, yeah, I mean, I you're going to be thinking that. about that all you, week. You, now. You, you have permission to reproduce that in your life. <laughs> so, Tony Pikeaday, if you could tell me who you are, what you do at Nvidia. Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. I'm Tony Pikeaday. I run product marketing for DJX Systems and DJX Pod and our data science platform. And do you have a way for people to contact you if they wanted to reach you? Yes, I do. It's at Tony Pikeaday, and I'll just spell it out, T-O-N-Y-P-A-I-K-E-D-A-Y. All right. Well, actually, we'll also include that in the show notes so that if you don't have the ability to spell it because you're in your car or something, uh, you'll have it available on the blog. Also with us today, we can't talk about AI at NetApp. It's a rule. It's a rule that we cannot talk about AI with NetApp unless we ask Santosh Rao. So, Santosh Rao, hi. Hey, Justin. Good to be back again. Thanks for having me back. So, Santosh, um, if you could tell everybody what you do and how to reach you. Yep. I'm uh, sort of the janitor-in-chief for AI. <laughs> I've been uh, uh, on this thing from day one. I like to call myself uh, employee number one on AI. But seriously, we have a team that focuses on uh, on uh, integrations around the product and solutions. We built the Converge platform called ONTAP AI, consisting of the NVIDIA DGX and the NetApp All Flash FAS across the portfolio of uh, A228, 300, and 800. And uh, we're focused on uh, basically rolling out solutions that meet our customers' needs across verticals, across use cases. We have a team of uh, data science TMEs that are uh, pretty much engaged in helping customers through this journey, whether it be on the data side or the compute side. That's what we do. So with ONTAP AI, is that kind of like a flex pod for AI, but with like an unofficial flex pod? Yes, I suppose you could say that it's a converged platform that is a pod-like architecture that allows you to use GPU-accelerated computing for AI training, AI inference validation, and uh, and a broad range of adjacent use cases where GPUs are now being used to accelerate workloads. I like to say that GPU is doing to CPU what Flash did to HDD. That's my tagline. People have heard that me heard me saying that for the last two years now. 
in a storage company, that's an interesting tagline because everybody in a storage company knows what Flash did to HDDs and what NVMe is doing to HDDs. And on the compute side, GPU is doing to CPUs what Flash did to HDD on the storage side. And if you're not accustomed to IT terminology, it's what Blu-ray did to DVD. Absolutely. It's uh, it's what the web scale vendors are doing to the brick and mortar. It's what the data science haves are doing to the data science have-nots. That's right. Everything changes. Uh, so we have to keep up. And before we get started into what we're going to talk about today with AI, I always like to level set and talk about the general overarching topic, and that's today's AI. So, uh, Tony, if you could give me your definition of AI and how it's different from something like machine learning or deep learning. Yeah, so you could almost uh, envision these like concentric circles, right? Like at the superset, we have AI, which includes a number of categories within, right, that are kind of nested in within. And that kind of the classical understanding of AI has been around, you know, general artificial intelligence, this idea of replicating human intelligence, um, you know, to do a wide range of possible things that mimic human behavior. But what's more interesting for enterprise and for business are those concentric circles, namely machine learning and deep learning. And so if I look at machine learning, machine learning is kind of the broader category of using an algorithmic approach to take data, either structured or unstructured data, and find patterns in that data. So using algorithms and using large computational capacity, we can, for instance, um, observe patterns detect anomalies from what you deem as normal patterns versus abnormal, and then using those anomalies or the ability to find those anomalies within data to make decisions, right? And so this could be, for instance, uh, looking at large structured tabular data, as in the case of machine learning, which might be, for instance, sensor data coming off of a machine or statistical data within a database. Um, For instance, think about like recommendation engines as an example that look at customer behavior or um, clickstream behavior uh, in a retail setting. Uh, And then if you kind of look within machine learning, uh, you find deep learning. And deep learning has really kind of come into the forefront uh, in the last few years, well, really since 2012. Um, and it's a great way to basically use an algorithmic approach to train on unstructured data and find, for instance, patterns in things like images and video and sound, for instance, speech and other things that allow us to very rapidly find meaningful insights from like an ocean of data on which we can drive images. So for instance, if, if you think about the typical thing of, you know, finding cats inside of videos, that's an obvious, obvious one that you could say is a deep learning use case. Maybe, maybe a more interesting one might be using deep learning to, for instance, detect obstacles on a roadway in a self-driving car. Uh, and, or for instance, spotting, uh, for instance, uh, precancerous cells within a radiology image. These are things that otherwise would take humans potentially decades to acquire skill within, but which a machine which has fed enough data can quickly develop expertise that's probably almost human-like in its in its uh, capability. So, Tony, have you ever seen the show Silicon Valley? Yes, I have, and I love it. So, is your favorite part hot dog or not hot dog? 
Yeah, you know, um, I remember reliving that very same moment uh, and and thinking, wow, if there wasn't a better example of deep learning at work, I don't know if I could think of it. But yeah, hot dog or no hot dog is a great example. Cat or no cat, or you know, any 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 and all of the above. It's funny, in fact, how much you know you use that example. Uh, deep learning enabled use cases actually are now starting to mainstream themselves, and I know we're going to talk about that later. But it's really becoming kind of almost a mainstream thing, whether people know that it's deep learning underneath it all or not. Um, I guess that's a question, but I think it's now becoming kind of more into the popular consciousness, if you will. What it also illustrated was some of the dangers of deep learning and machine learning is, you know, it's only as good as what you input. So it's only as good as the data you get. So in hot dog or not hot dog, it wasn't always right because it didn't have good data to, yeah. to use. Yeah. And you know, the other thing, Justin, is sometimes we get a little bit ahead of ourselves because we take a cool technology and we want to use it as a single hammer for every nail, right? Now, there is an argument to be said that there's some things that if you understand their behavior and you can accurately model their behavior with a proven algorithm that has nothing to do necessarily with deep learning, then you don't necessarily need to do deep learning, right? Like I can pick up a baseball, throw it in the air, and through simple physics and proven algorithms that existed for hundreds of years, I can tell you pretty well where that ball is going to land, right? I don't need, for instance, you know, object detection and a sophisticated deep learning algorithm to, to find the answer to that question for me. So this is going to be one of those things where, you know, enterprise is going to target this technology in places that are really meaningful and which are, you know, you know the answer is buried in data, but you don't have a proven or grounded approach or an algorithmic approach that already exists to give you the answer you need. Every time I talk about AI, and the two speech assists that I use are a cell phone that I pull out of my pocket, and if I can find a remote control around, I'm going to use a remote control, and basically tell people every one of you have an AI use case or multiple use cases right there around you with a phone in your pocket or a remote control around you. So if you're using a remote control these days, just about every provider has, you know, voice activated uh, commands, and that is nothing but NLP and and speech recognition in play right there. If you're talking to your phone on Siri or or Bixby or whatever it may be, you're dealing with AI right there. If you're talking to Google, you're dealing with AI NLP right there. So. So without realizing it, everybody's interacting with AI in the most common ways today. I mean, my kids don't even use the remote control numbers or keypad. All they do is they call out the favorite episode of some kind of uh, um, serial that they're watching or whatever it is. And, and that's how they get to the, uh, the, 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 the TV content that they want to watch. And so so for, for the generation coming up, they probably only operate through AI. You know, the suggestions they get from the things they've watched, like, you know, you may also like this comes from the deep learning side of it, the machine learning side of it. Yep. So, so, you know, the most basic use cases are prevalent around us and people have accepted it without even realizing it. Uh, the interesting aspect is how do you then expand the technology to make it prevalent across a broad range of interactions? I mean, to take the counter example, it really freaks me out when I'm here on the busy roads of Silicon Valley and I look at the number of road boulders we have, which is cars just going in the slowest speed possible. And you pass them and you look at them and what are they doing? They're glancing at their cell phones. 
and i'm like oh my god here's an ideal use case where if you could speak to your car and have the phone ecosystem plugged into your car you're not you're not putting yourself and others at risk around you talking about uh, road safety and safety of people around you it's incredible the number of people that are on the cell phones i don't know if this is just a a silicon valley thing or you guys see it in rtp or atlanta uh, i guess the roads in rtp give you enough leeway to do that but <laughs> so it's me out when i see that happen out here in the old days bad driving is bad driving everywhere <laughs> in the old days we used to just read magazines while we drove <laughs> I've seen people yeah. doing this before, so I mean it's not much better. Yeah, people I think they get bored and they want to do other things, which, you know, of course, now we have the self-driving technology that's coming out, also AI and machine learning learning driven that will help actually allow people to do that now. <laughs> but anyway, uh that's that's besides the point. It's, you know, AI and machine learning isn't just self-driving cars and autonomous driving, it's also many other things. Uh so Tony, uh what sort of enterprising uh, enterprises are deploying AI, and what's the current trends? And you know, or is it just a fad? That's a great question. If I can hit the trends first, I I'll, I will say we're seeing something really interesting happening. Like, you know, everybody talks about the deployment pace at which AI is rolling out. If you look at recent numbers from Gartner, um, they show that. You know, in the last year, we saw we saw a three x increase in terms of the number of enterprises that um, defined themselves as either deploying it in the next twelve months or have already deployed. And in fact, I think we're seeing like thirty thirty seven percent of this year in the you know already deployed in some form or fashion versus maybe a third of that the year before. And you know, we're seeing that it grew roughly 270% in the last four years. Again, that's kind of a Gartner number, but consistently across the board, what we're seeing this pervasive reach of AI into the furthest reaches of the enterprise. And I'm leaning on enterprise because this is no longer kind of like this esoteric thing that happens within the halls of academia or high-end research. Uh, you see like every industry engaging in use use cases that are either specific to their industry or broadly adopted in a horizontal way. Like I look at, I mean, obviously there's autonomous vehicles and there's great interest there, but healthcare, manufacturing, public sector, those are among some of the fastest growing industries that we saw in 2018. And there's really, I mean, if you're an enterprise listening to this podcast, the great news for you is that there are low hanging fruit in terms of use cases in whatever industry that you're in that have already been well proven that you can monetize, you know, today to either, you know, make more money or, or improve efficiency, lower costs, whatever it is. So you mentioned that uh, these industries are taking this new technology on. What's their motivation? Like, why are they taking this on? What's the benefit to their business? A lo- you know, a lot of organizations uh, it's funny, you know, they think that there's this existential threat that exists if they don't embrace AI. And some of that is maybe like a little bit of fear mongering or they come back from a conference and the CIO uh, find out like, hey, we got to do AI. And, and they don't necessarily know why or what they're going to do. But the ones who have really embraced it have associated uh, a totally achievable AI use case with a fundamental business problem, something for which the answer lies buried in data that they already have, right? They're not embarking on a science project or some 
arcane thing that they think will hopefully maybe somewhere far down the road, you know, achieve some niche benefit. The folks who are doing this know that there's specific use cases that have money attached to them. And so they're looking at things like, you know, if you're a retailer, you're thinking about inventory forecasting, right? If you're in the media entertainment space, you're thinking about, for instance, um, recommendation engines or content-based search, right? If you're in healthcare, you're thinking about cancer cell detection. If, if you're in, for instance, various internet services, uh, you may be thinking about uh, natural language processing. Maybe you're in any industry, you're thinking about improving customer service and using NLP to improve kind of your your engagement with customers through catch, uh, chatbots or conversational AI. So in every one of these things, there's, there's essentially a money impacting opportunity for which um, customers think or organizations think AI is very important. I guess the flip side is obviously there's a lot of organizations that think about things like security, you know, how to better protect assets and resources and infrastructure using AI, which it's also really good at because, you know, this thing is this AI capability is deep learning is great at finding anomalies, right? Looking at oceans of ledger transactions and modeling what is normal accounting flow and finding that one transaction a needle in a haystack that's probably a precursor to some fraudulent behavior, right? So, you know, these are all things that are real AI gold in the ground versus, you know, people thinking that it's all about selling picks and shovels, which it's not. There's a there's an, uh, an other perspective to this, which is no matter what the vertical is, you're seeing that there is a disruptor in that vertical today that has taken a page from the web scale uh, books. So whether it be retail you look at Amazon and the Amazon effect retail. Uh, if it is transportation, it's Uber, Lyft, and Tesla. Um, if it is uh, manufacturing, you're starting to clearly see across the board uh, autonomous uh, capabilities and so on. So what's going on is there is a disruptor emerging for every vertical and almost every use case that is now making it existential to look at the space uh, and consider adoption. And what has changed, as we've seen technology curves come in, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, technology curves were adopted uh, as research and advanced technology teams uh, brought in the technology or sometimes an acquisition brought in the technology. What we've seen now is that the web scale technologies and the web scale vendors have entered the mainstream verticals and use cases. The technologies that were once a search engine company or a company that was focused on internal uh, large-scale distribution logistics are now turning their attention to a variety of verticals, which means they're bringing the full horsepower of thousands of engineers and the IP they produce into those brick-and-mortar verticals. So what we're seeing through the AI lens is the transformation of brick-and-mortar uh, being disrupted by web scale. That's really what's going on. And that's where it is not affordable to ignore this anymore. That's why we see the rapid uptick in adoption because this is a do or die um, situation that customers are facing as they look at data science, as they look at digital transformation more broadly, and as they look at AI as sort of the, the cornerstone for what digital transformation needs to do. You know, you think about 
whether it's oil and gas or energy providers, or really anybody in the manufacturing domain. But let me pick on like oil and gas for a minute because that word existential is very important because, you know, there is such a volatile environment that those organizations, those companies are dealing with, right? And every aspect of their, you know, um, energy delivery process from how they find oil in the ocean to how they get it to the gas pump needs to be optimized and improved and delivered with the highest of efficiency because of what's at stake for energy providers these days, right? So there's a great example of folks who are essentially looking at every aspect of that end-to-end pipeline and finding AI use cases that will help them improve profitability, like reduce costs and be able to obviously, um, you know, ensure their future, you know, through digital transformation. So we're talking about things like, for instance, seismic modeling and, you know, things like that that allow you to, first of all, find where oil is, as an example. But then, you know, once you've found it and once you're, you've got uh, equipment out there, industrial inspection, right, looking for defects in the um, delivery process, in the manufacturing process, uh, with greater accuracy and precision, right, predictive maintenance and monitoring, uh, you know, as a precursor to downtime, right? Uh, even industrial robotics and optimization of the supply chain. So they're really thinking about it from a truly end-to-end perspective because it is such an existential threat and opportunity. And the interesting part of that is when you're late to the game, you need you need a use case to show that you're in the game. And so it's kind of uh, it's kind of. Uh, an interesting observation to see how different companies approach this. The early entrants have the luxury of experimentation and and uh, exotic use cases. The late entrants have to pick the low-hanging fruit and be able to productize a use case and say, yep, we're doing it too. So what sort of low-hanging fruit would you see available for, for these industries? You know, if you're in kind of the internet services domain, I definitely think about, you know, uh, image and video classification. We have a lot of organizations that are doing things like, for instance, creating APIs that other enterprises can use as a service to, for instance, classify uh, images within the database, right? Um, speech recognition, natural language processing, uh, definitely applicable. In healthcare, I mentioned cancer cell detection. We also hear about diabetic grading, certainly drug discovery, which is a long, arduous costly process that's all getting streamlined and accelerated by AI. Uh, in the media and entertainment space, we see things like video captioning. Um, we see, uh, for instance, uh, exposure measurement of brand logo placement within sports reels. Uh, we see real-time translation. Uh, within security and defense, we think, see things like facial recognition and video surveillance, cybersecurity and protection of civil infrastructure, uh, pr- by processing data from multiple different uh, IoT type sensors. Uh, so those are probably some very typical examples. I could go on with kind of retail, as I mentioned, uh, inventory forecast, definitely you know low hanging fruit that can have a huge impact on profitability. Uh, so also we see loss prevention, loss prevention in retail using deep learning uh, and video processing. Another great example. So. Thing is, in all of these, you know, there are proven use cases that you don't have to be in that, you know, phase of having to be the uh, the propeller head or the 
the person who's doing groundbreaking, you know, thought leadership type work. This is stuff that's fairly mechanized and already well documented that almost anybody can get access to proven models and deploy them in an enterprise setting to train on their data. So how pervasive is this stuff getting? I mean, I know that we're talking a little bit about some of the use cases and some of the places we're starting to see it, but how deep does this go? Like how, how many places are using it that we wouldn't even think about it? Every industry that you can think of has uh, AI attackable use cases, right? And we've talked about some ones that are kind of vertical or industry specific. We also mentioned oil and gas and energy production. But let's think about stuff that's even horizontal, right? Like optical character recognition. You can almost think about any business that has stuff sitting on paper, right? That they need to digitize. Everybody wants to go digital. And AI has a earth shattering ability to help companies go digital and take, you know, maybe millions of pieces of paper and make those searchable and intelligent, right? Um, so that's really any industry. It's so pervasive. Uh, you know, neural machine translation or real-time translations, almost any organization that does business, especially in a global setting, needs that kind of capability. Uh, whether you're a big organization like an like an Alibaba group, for instance, that services like 8.3 billion transla- translation requests a day, or even a very small operation that needs to work you know, in three different time zones, having translation capabilities can can save you a lot of time and streamline your operations. Uh, factories, you know, factories are now becoming more and more automated. You know, I was talking with BMW Group uh, last week. And when we think BMW, obviously, you think about autonomous vehicle, but actually think about their factory. Think about how they actually build cars and that's a fairly automated environment at BMW. I, I toured their Munich factory. I'd say 99% of it is already automated, but that last, last 1%, they're using AI. So think about autonomous transport systems within the factory, as well as the ability to detect objects in 3D space, for instance, on shelves or in other systems and being able to interact with materials and move them around the factory. So that's something that applies to anybody who's got a four-walled factory and that's building something, right, in the manufacturing setting. Talked about chatbots, that's there. Think about any organization that has a customer service operation, right, and call centers, right? Most of those environments today, they might listen to only 2% of their call center recordings. And the transcription accuracy on those recordings is maybe 20%. But AI through companies like DeepGram, as an example, is letting companies mine 100% of their recordings with incredible, almost 100% accuracy, You know, which is great for insights and knowing when to, for instance, intervene with special offers to a customer who might be leaving you, how to predict churns, improve agent trainings, any number of things. And those are, again, applicable to really any industry. So it's getting super pervasive use cases in every industry. I even saw, you know, one that hits farming, like farming, you know, you asked me probably how's AI helping farming? Well, you know, reducing the amount of pesticides and herbicides that you spray on crops today, it's broadcast, what they call broadcast spray methods, right? They probably put way too much um, of these chemicals on what's eventually becoming what's eventually our food, right? And, you know, these weeds are getting more and more resistant because of this overspray. $25 billion a year is spent on this stuff. 
And so now AI has the ability to deliver exactly the right amount in the right places under the right conditions, such that we're using way less. And that's a really exciting use case that's hitting even the farming community. Who would have thought AI-powered farming? But yeah, it's going to hit every industry. Yeah, in addition to that, with farming, I mean, you're also looking at weather trends. You're looking at soil. You're looking at how, you know, what is the best time to plant certain crops, which is the best time to alternate to a different type of crop. So all that data can be fed into machine learning and give you the best results for your overall business use case. Yeah, and it's not esoteric. It's not like some arcane use case that you need a bunch of rocket scientists to figure out because no one has. This is all built on foundational AI and deep learning technologies and machine learning technologies that have already been proven, models that already exist out there. You know, so it's not like you're, you know, cracking like brand new frontiers. You're just, you know, applying proven models to your specific use case. R.I.P. the Farmer's Almanac. Yeah. <laughs> So as far as uh, getting involved with AI and trying to, if you're trying to sell to customers or if you're trying to develop it and deploy it in your own environment, what are some processes that you can go, you can use to start with this? How can you get started? We talked about low-hanging fruit, and that's ideally a use case that has a tangible business impact associated with it, right? And, you know, a lot of companies think that they got to do this big AI moonshot thing, right? Um, but really that first success is critical, especially for, if you think about this organization with your stakeholders, right? You've got to have a team of people who see a tangible economic opportunity or impact associated with the very specific task or problem that you want to solve with AI, because no one wants to do, or no one should be doing AI for the sake of AI. It's not the hammer for every nail, as I kind of mentioned before. So the ideal use case is one uh, that's been proven to be effective in your industry along the lines of the examples we gave. Um, it's associated with a business problem that everybody recognizes. And a quick win is really important because it sets this precedent, right? It lets you establish success. It lets you secure resource and budget, which is the name of the game in this. And it kind of has this flywheel effect whereby in conjunction with an exec sponsor, you can cast light on the outcomes that you're getting from your work and you can get more and more support and resources to keep going. And as you do this, you'll start to form, for instance, a multidisciplinary team, a multidisciplinary speak, multidisciplinary team. So think about, for instance, somebody who understands the business, who could be like a business analyst, um, who recognizes that it's revenue impacting, but also understands um, where the, whether the data exists that can be pinned to the problem. You, you definitely want a data scientist. Uh, someone who knows whether a feasible model could be developed on top of that data. I think you definitely want a data engineer who's thinking about how to go from the early prototyping, model prototyping that the data scientists may do, and taking that into a production data pipeline. Um, you probably need someone in a DevOps context who can understand infrastructure and how to work with the platform. And you probably want an app developer who can work with DevOps and build, deploy, and manage, you know, the solutionized or productized uh, version of the work, right? And all along the way, you want to be able to, you know, review the data, um, look at where it's reside, understand how it's being fed through this process. And you, you definitely want to ensure that on the tail end of this, when you go into production inferencing, uh, 
you know, and you're using operational model, you're ultimately feeding that back into the development process so you can further refine and improve the model's accuracy over time. Um, and I think through the experience of going from like that initial idea or concept to a pilot to kind of a production setting, your team will develop this expertise and kind of what I call like muscle memory um, to make the follow-on projects easier, easier. And you can then be able to tackle more progressively complex or challenging, uh, you know, uh, opportunities to engage in. But that's that's a very typical trajectory, I think, that we we see. You have to start with thinking about where you are and where you want to be, which is, um, are you being disrupted? Are you the disruptor? Uh, do you have the budget to be able to compete with the disruptor? Uh, as in, if I pick a retail example, are you Walmart going up against Amazon? That is a position where Walmart is going on the offense and trying to build out you know, superior capabilities amongst the brick and mortar and certainly be a second, uh, you know, force to reckon with in the e-retail and online retail space. Are you a Walmart or, no offense, but are you a Rite Aid? So the difference there is one looks at what do I do with the budget I have? And the other looks at how aggressive can I be? How do I pivot from being a traditional company to being an online provider? And so the difference in those approaches is one leads down the path, the offensive approach leads down the path of hiring a data science team, scoping out use cases across the product lines, scoping out use cases across the functions, taking almost a COE or center of excellence approach and going all into AI, which is every product line, every function shall use AI. Every line is going to look at what is the roadmap around AI holistically? And it's going to start investing significant amounts on both existing use cases, but also building entirely new transformative workflows, existing data sets, but also collecting from the ground up brand new data sets intended for data science. And so that's a very holistic on the offense approach. That's what a disruptor or one competing with the disruptor would do. On the other hand, if you are a brick and mortar in the very traditional sense, you've got to survive. You got to look at, I'm going to pick up some of this. What am I going to do? So your options are going to range from, am I going to work with a software platform that builds the capability for me? For example, is there a use case software that is going to do fraud detection for my online payments? Is there a use case software that is going to do recommender systems for my online customer base? Is there a use case software that is able to do video surveillance within the store or shelf inventory within the store? So a very use case centric and software centric approach where you pick a software vendor to go after each use case. The second thing you could do is you could work with software as a middleware platform that really brings data science down to what you would call data science for dummies. So these are the kinds of platforms where you can actually look at inputting a set of data and use case and be able to look at models that are iterated through the data to give you a recommended model and give you a recommended outcome. And so you're working with a very minimal requirement in terms of custom data science and custom data science teams. So you can go from very use case specific software, you can go down to platform that is middleware, 
or you could go into the cloud and take advantage of all of those combinations available through the cloud. So those are some of your options, whether you're coming at it from an offensive strategy or a defensive strategy. Once you have done that, you've got to then look at, okay, how am I going to go about this? What does success mean? And am I going to adopt this in one line of business, one use case, show success, then go to the next, then go to the next line of business? Or is this a company-wide mandate? Every line of business goes in and they look at this across the board. So these are some of the choices that customers need to think through. I think it's a fascinating topic. It's one that you know I constantly remind our team that when we are on this journey, we are not dealing with uh, technology for technology's sake, but we're dealing with the complete transformation of how business is done, how healthcare is provided, how we commute, uh, and and how we consume. Everything around us is changing, and we are fortunate and blessed to be in the roles that we are in, to have a small piece to play. And every time we have an engagement with a customer and we're uh, fortunate enough that, that a customer invites us in to help them through that journey as they transform themselves, uh, it's an opportunity for us to play a small role in how people are going to interact in the future across everything that we do. Every single thing that we do. I mean, I, I, I gotta just, you know, I, I know autonomous is overused as an example, but just to pick on one small example, I picked up a, uh, a new car finally after, after a long, long time last year, and it had adaptive cruise control, which is, you know, you'd say the early stages of semi autonomous. And I can't tell you how transformative for me that's been. I've put in 15,000 miles in nine months and haven't really sweat a drop. Because I get on the freeway and this thing literally drives itself. And and think about that. I mean, you know, you're doing all this driving, all these family duties and on-the-job duties. And, and all of a sudden, you don't feel it anymore because the car is driving itself. That is a life-transforming thing. It's going to change how people consume cars. And, um, you know, we're just fortunate to be doing what we do today. Couldn't agree more. And that's a great example. You know, the other side of this is the generation coming after us will treat this technology like kind of brass tacks. You know, this is just tools that are in their toolkit that they use in, you know, any number of aspects of their lives, their education or their professional careers, right? I'm going to pick on one example. Like uh, my daughter is in a robotics league uh, at her, at her high school. And this year their, their national challenge uh, involved you know, sending the robot on a mission to, for instance, detect different colored objects and grab a certain colored object. And, you know, you saw immediately that, you know, the classical approach to this was, you know, you hard code logic with a color sensor to tell the robot, this is what green looks like, go after green, right? And, and I can't imagine the endless lines of code that some of these teams were involved in. And, uh, my daughter was fortunate enough to recognize that that's a classical deep learning problem and that, lo and behold, uh, TensorFlow does a great job of, uh, you know, with minimal code, allowing you to attack that problem and get uh, much more precise, accurate, and responsive behavior from your robot in terms of like, fulfilling that task. But for this generation, it's not like it's rocket science for them. This is just you know, table stakes tools that they're going to use to do any number of things that are important to them. They won't be thinking about how cool AI or this technology is. It'll just be there and they'll, you know, be at their fingernips to use whether they're a 
data scientists or not. So, uh, Santosh, if I want to get more information about AI, uh, where would I do that? That's a great question. You'd be going to netapp.com slash AI, netapp.com slash AI again. And my own Twitter handle is at Santorao, S-A-N-T-O-R-A-O. And Tony, how would we contact you? At Tony Pickering, T-O-N-Y-P-A-I-K-E-D-A-Y. And I'd obviously love for you guys to go to NVIDIA.com as well. Oh, I had one last question. Okay. So, are, we, um, are we on the record or off the record? This is on the record. In the case of a benevolent dictator of AI, who is it going to be, Siri or Alexa? <laughs> I think oh it's going to be Skynet. <laughs> no, no, no. They'll, they'll mutate in a Skynet. But who, who's to start off with? Is it Siri or is it Alexa? You don't have well, you're that. still you're still talking about benevolent, right? So you didn't mention the the uh, the alternate options out there. Well, benevolent to AI is totally different than benevolent to the rest of us. So keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd, I'd I'd have to say it's probably gonna be a combination of both. Oh, they're gonna uh, they're gonna merge. That's what they're gonna, gonna merge, and you're gonna have a combination of a. Uh, uh, Alexity of some form. Oh man! Dealing with all of the myriad ecosystems that are embedded all over the place. All right, excellent. So, uh, Tony Santosh, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, of course, we'll have you guys on again sometime soon to talk more about AI and machine learning and how what it means to the uh, the overall business structures that are happening out there. Thank you, Justin. Appreciate the time here. Thank you, Tony. Fascinating conversation as always. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Santosh Rao and Tony Pikeaday for joining us. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.